Welcome to Nightlife, the podcast. The old saying goes, it's a wise man who knows his own father. And of course, these days, it's DNA experts who know who your father is. Around the world, there are literally millions of people who've done DNA tests and have contributed to a massive global data bank. Uh, Via sites like Ancestry.com, you can find out about the origins of your ethnicity, who you're related to across the globe. Uh, You can do it the old-fashioned way via family trees, births, deaths, marriage records, or via a DNA test. Why do we do it? How can this knowledge about our origins enrich our lives? And what if there are things that we find out that we might not want to know? Well, on the show tonight is a voice you might find familiar if you've been a long-time listener back in the Tony Delroy days. Brad Argent, Senior Director of International Programming at Ancestry.com, joins us tonight. Welcome, Brad, and welcome back. Thank you, Susan. Lovely to be back. I have to say, since we last spoke to you, you've had a bit of a promotion. You're now based in the UK normally, aren't you? Well, I am, yeah. I um, I went over to the UK in the middle of COVID, um, which didn't really seem like such a great idea at the time. But um, I went over to make a television show, and I've been pretty much making that television show nonstop for the last two and a half years. So... Um, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating experience. Yeah. Oh, gosh, we've got lots of people on the line already, Brad. People must have missed you. <laughs> I reckon it's about nine years since you were last on Nightlife. Wow. Yeah. So this is interesting. Just before the, the news, I was talking with Serene Damaki, who was hosting the National Evening Show. She's of Lebanese background, and she was saying, look, um, if I go to most websites, it's not great for people like me because they seem to be quite skewed to the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, is that true or do other sort of parts of the world have their own databases like Ancestry.com? Yeah, look, I think that's a really accurate observation. A lot of the larger, uh, you know, commercial websites do have a tendency to skew towards sort of a Western cultural experience. And, and really, I think a lot of the ways in which family history is portrayed in the media is with that lens. But there are avenues that you can explore. There are perhaps, you know, smaller, more niche collections you can find online, but a lot of the material is still offline, still sitting in archives around the world. And so, you know, you're going to need to go and get access to the material. But some people... Suzanne, some people don't even get have that. Records are not kept. And so what can they do? And this is where it's it's starting to do, you're starting to see this happen out there. And there's lots of support in some of the more traditional family history environments of oral history. 
And it's a it's a different process and a different way of looking at family history, but it can be just as rewarding. Okay, so talk us through how you how you do that, what that actually looks like. Okay, yeah, look, um, you know, very recent experience. I just come back from making a show in South Africa, and um, you know, it's an environment where there was no no records, and so we had to use this process where we identified the people in the family. So we we spoke to we spoke to the parents and and then we where we could we spoke to aunts and uncles. We got names, we got addresses, we went and saw people, we rang people up. So we it's all about people. You speak to people, you get the stories, you write things down. People have a tendency when they tell you stories to lead you to places. Places have a tendency then to present you with objects. They could be gravestones, they could be family photos, they could be family Bibles. And those objects will then again redirect you to people. So it's this sort of constant cycling through this process. And as you go, you collect information, but more importantly, you collect stories. Because in an oral tradition, stories are the things that contain the information. Now they get changed over time, but if you gather the information from multiple sources, you see common themes coming through and you can start to rebuild a sense of how your family is connected to a place and how your family is connected to time. Now, it won't be the very traditional structured tree branching process that you might be familiar with if you're at all familiar with family history, but it will be a process of finding connections it's more of a mind map of your family but it can be just as rewarding if not more rewarding because there is a sense of recovering something that is yeah. at, uh, at risk of being lost yeah I, I i suppose you'd have to go into it with with a different set of expectations but i'm guessing too brad that that kind of approach has its limits when you go back in time surely it's hard to go too far back in time if, if you're I guess, relying on stories and talking to people who are still alive. Yeah, I mean, it does have a natural sort of ceiling to it. But then this is where DNA can come in and, and it can perhaps be even more handy for people in this situation because it can find cousins. It can rebuild family trees simply from the genetic material. And you can, by looking at the cousins that you might match up with and looking at your ethnicity, you may be able to put your ancestors at a place on the map at a point in time. Now, it won't be the same as, you know, finding a parish record from the 1400s, but it will give you a sense of belonging and a sense of connection, and more importantly, a sense of identity, which, you know, I've always felt that family history, regardless of how you pursue it or why you go into it, Identity is what comes out at the now, end. Why do you think people are so interested in in that, in who their their ancestors were and, and where they might have been? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's one of the things I ponder, and I perhaps ponder it too much. But <laughs> I think family history is a kind of narrative therapy, if you like. It's a way of us exploring ourselves through the traces of our ancestors because you know if they hadn't been who they were and done the things that they did we would not be who we are where we are so i think by going through this process of rebuilding that 
in some sense, it's a way of understanding ourselves. And anyone who spends any amount of time doing family history will find stories that resonate with them. They will find ancestors that they seem to connect with in ways they can't really explain because they think they see a reflection of self. Now, what leads you into family history could be curiosity, um, a rumour of, you know, scandal is always, you know, something that can be quite attractive um, or or just a general sense of, you know, wanting to know why you're here, yeah. particularly in a nation like Australia that where the, where the vast bulk of us are, you know, the product of immigration. Yeah. We all know that our origin story begins somewhere else. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think I love I love the idea of connecting myself to history, which is uh, one of the ideas I like to do. Now, we've yeah. already got quite a few callers on the board, Brad, so I might jump into a few of those, but I've got lots of other questions to ask you as well. Hi, Jill in Gympie. Welcome. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you. This is great. Uh, hi, Brad. Um, Hi, I've done my I've done my ancestry DNA, um, which was fascinating, and I can travel travel my father's line, you know, for centuries. And you know, I find neither queen nor scan scoundrel. <laughs> I find good public servants, you know, teachers and nurses, and a few few ended up in the poorhouse. But it's my maternal great grandmother. It, it, guess what? Her name is Margaret Macdonald. Do you have any idea how many Margaret Macdonalds there are? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> But mum used to tell, and she was Scottish, we, you know, mum said, mum used to tell us little stories about her saying, you know, she had five, she used to say she had five husbands and we'd all laugh and say, what did she do with them? Mum, did she knock them off or what happened? You know, I think this was some sort of joke. But the more I looked at Margaret MacDonald, the one I thought was Margaret MacDonald, there was a marriage, but I don't know if that's our ancestor or was it one of the other would-be husbands or liaisons? You know, it's a blind alley which just ends, mm. Brad. What do I do about that? Yeah, look, that that can be very challenging, you know, um, it, particularly if you have Smiths in your family and you're trying to find a Mary Smith. Um, it's the same problem. So what you need to do, and I'm sure you've done this because it's obvious you've been doing this for some time, is you look for supporting records. So family, family stories are great but you need evidence to back them up and you look for, yeah, marriage records are great, but not every marriage makes it into the records simply because, you know, records fall down behind the back of a filing cabinet, stuff gets lost in the mail. People can get married publicly, but not necessarily officially. And so you have to look for alternative sources to back some of this mm. stuff up. Newspapers are a great source. But I think one of the really undervalued resources that we have in Australia in particular is our local family history societies and our local history societies. Often some of the answers I've been looking for have been sitting on the shelf in a local history society for years just waiting for me to walk in the door and ask the question. The internet is wonderful and the fact that we can search the national archives of so many countries from all luxury of our living rooms is wonderful. But it is, you know, literally the tip of the iceberg when it comes to history. 
So it's a great starting point, but that's all it is. It's a starting point. I, I want to know how you get on. Jill from Gympie, who do you think you are? And I take you around the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the first thing to do is become famous. Um, well, Jill, you've got some notoriety on nightlife. I'm not quite sure it's enough to get you on the program, though. I don't think so. And the other thing is women's histories get lost, don't they? Lost and wander all over the place. It's very hard to track the women I find, yeah. Mm. Anyway, yes. it's great. And, I, um, yeah, I spend far too much time looking at them. Because the thing, the thing I found is I'm 75% Celt, apparently, so which I'm happy with. But I've been looking, um, and I don't want to um, disrespect anyone, but i I believe there is some Indigenous history in our family and I've been trying to find it. It doesn't come up in the ancestry DNA, does it? Well, it does. Um, we we added um, in Indigenous ethnicity to our DNA results um, about a couple of years ago now. Um, but, and this is a really important point, so I'm glad that you brought it up. DNA is just part of who you are. It is not something that will ever take anything away from you. So simply because of the way ethnicity works and the way DNA works, you could have an ancestor who was Indigenous, an ancestor who was Scottish or Irish, but just be, you might not have inherited the genetic markers that identify that ethnicity. So that when you get your DNA results back and they don't map to what you believe to be you know, your ethnicity or your identity, it doesn't mean that you were wrong. It just means that the DNA doesn't show that. But that is still your story. And what I always try and encourage people to do with DNA is if you can only ever take one DNA test, you have to be strong and give that to ideally the eldest person in the family and get them to take that. Explain to them what it is. Make sure you're getting informed consent and capture their genetic material because they're going to be as close to the source as possible. And it's likely that if you've got those kinds of stories in your family, that you want to capture that DNA before it disappears to have that piece of evidence. But again, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm. Just because it's not in the DNA doesn't mean it isn't in your story. It just means you might need to find another way to get that piece of information. How fascinating, Brad. I, I, I mean, what you're saying makes perfect sense, but I don't think I'd twigged that yeah, things might be missing from that that catalogue of, of the places and the ethnicities in your, your background. Uh, Jill, thanks uh, thanks very much for uh, for your call. Look, um, actually, we might talk to Georgie, and then I do want to make sure we spend a bit of time actually talking about how precisely the DNA tests that you, that you do through Ancestry work and what you do find out. Hello, Georgie. Hello. You've, oh, um, you've also done, well, have you done DNA or not? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Oh, my God. <laughs> right, tell us oh, what you did. Oh. No, I just did it. Um, and oh, I could spend every minute of the day um, <laughs> looking at matches and looking at and, and wondering how and finding out how. And one of the most amazing things um, that I've, helped somebody with and that's sort of how I see myself as a helper because I can see all these I have a reasonable database of um, family history and we came from a fairly small little area in New South Wales 
um, but we've obviously come from lots of other places. Um, this person, I helped him find his birth dad and oh. that's possibly not the easiest thing to find because, um, you know, every every mother knows that she's had the child. But um, And so, Georgie, how did you do that? Was this something involving a DNA I just, test? No, no. Well, I just saw I just saw all the matches. I saw all the matches and I just wrote, so naive. I mean, this wasn't a huge DNA uh, and I sent him organs. I didn't even know what they were, but um, the center organs were just not really high. And I just wrote to this man and said, we have a match, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote back a simple message. And then I thought, oh, I'll write back to him. And then he wrote back. And then he said to me, um, um, well, I'm, I've adopted and um, I'm really trying to find my birth mother. Oh, I'm thinking birth mother. Oh, well, I'm, I don't know. I've got somebody that's really strong here. I don't know whether it's your mother or your father. And um, we just kept working 18,000 words later. Wow. I was able to um, say to him, this is who I think your father is, yeah. not your mother. And he yeah. says to me, um, I'm in Australia. I've got my birth paper, my birth um uh, papers from the where I was born and I know my mother's birth name and whatever how do you think this well it's, it's just even spooky thinking about this and I said well I believe that's your birth dad this is how I see it right you've got one person from my paternal side yeah. and you've got 35 from my maternal side and I have found a person on my father's side that has married a person on my mother's side and there's one son there that can be your father. Yeah, wow. And he's the right age and he's the whatever. And let me just tell you, he was out here, I won't say from where, um, way back when COVID hit. But anyway, he was here and I found out, I found out that he was here and he met his birth dad. Oh wow, Georgie, that is um, that's just incredible. You obviously did a lot of a lot of work there, but it was the DNA um, by the sounds of it that, that started that whole process. So Brad Summer just says to all those related to Charlemagne, call in now. That's most of us, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> What's the stats on that? Are we all related to Charlemagne, or like half of us? Well, yeah. I mean, this is this is one of the things about um, you know you go back far enough, and everybody is related to everybody else, which you know I think is something we should remind ourselves of every day. I think it might change the way we interact with each other if we realised we were actually family. Mm. But but you know, I the the work that Georgie does, the when they call themselves research angels, um, is wonderful and it, there is so much of it going on particularly through social media where people are helping other people understand their dna results helping them you know find the missing pieces of their family and um you know it's wonderful to watch and it's wonderful to see people particularly these days you're seeing people at the, towards the end of their life are, are getting answers to these questions that they have carried with them for so long, and much of it due to the good work of people like Georgie. Uh, Georgie, um, good on you. 
Um, a couple of interesting SMS. Someone says, look, I can tell you why it's important for me to explore my family history. I have no family. The family I did have lied about my origins. I'm untethered. And uh, so having some sense of ancestry feels like I belong in the world and my existence and traits make sense. Uh, someone says their auntie did their genealogy way back to Matilda, Queen Consort of England, 1031, and Henry the Second. Oh, that's pretty good, Lynette. Uh, yeah, people talking about, just mentioning Mormon families have been doing genealogy for quite some time. Now, someone wants to know, Brad, were occupations of early 1900s barbers and hairdressers described that way or were barbers all called hairdressers? Obviously, someone who's trying to follow their family tree using occupation. Yeah, it can. they can change and they can change um when you're particularly when you're looking at things like census records, you can see them recorded as both. And a lot of it will depend on the enumerator. So yeah, I would I would consider both of those things. We you don't really see consistency coming through in record in, in record keeping until towards the end of the eighteen hundreds when literacy levels were improving and and where you got a little bit more process. When you look at the earlier records, you often have people who were not literate explaining to people who were barely literate how to spell their surnames or what their occupations were. And when you look at things like census records, um, you can see in some of them that the quality of the data collection deteriorates um, over the day over the census period as the census taker gets tired or, you know, stops off at the pub for lunch and gets a little bit more relaxed in the afternoon. The right, handwriting so starts details to got taken at five o'clock. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, good luck. Yeah, wow. Um, uh, Brad, just interesting, it used to be considered, I think, mainly older people who were most interested in uh, mm. looking for their, their ancestry. Have you noticed that changing? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, you know, when I started doing this, um, oh, maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, it was very much the the pursuit of, say, over 65, so people who had retired. And there's a good reason for that, Suzanne. You know, um, a long time ago, it was a, you know, quite a detailed, drawn-out, long-term process. You know, one needed to write away to get access to, to records. Um, and then, you know, if you didn't get the record you needed, you needed it right away again and wait. But as it's become, as more and more stuff has, has come online, as it's become more accessible and as it's become more sociable, uh, socially acceptable, more, more normalised, if you like, it has pulled in a younger, a younger audience. And I think now people engaging in family history are generally 45 plus. But what's always fascinated me is this growing cohort of 18 to 25-year-olds who are becoming interested in it. Now, the way they go about it is very different. They have a tendency to want to snack on things and get little pieces of information. And they curate their identities. And this is one of the great things about the the, the world we live in now is, is you can create your own identity it isn't something that you're necessarily directly born into and you're stuck with for life you can change yourself based on how you see yourself and younger people are using family history and, and dna in particular to get those 
elements of themselves to curate their identity. And I think I think it's a wonderful thing because if we can encourage them to use history that way, as, as you say, Suzanne, to see a connection for themselves in history, then I'm comfortable knowing that history will be saved. If we can't do that, if we can't find a way for them to feel like history is important to them, it it does risk being lost. Yeah, exactly. So now I just, I will get to those of you who are waiting on the line, but I do just want to understand, uh, say you you send away the DNA sample, uh, you get it back. What does it actually tell you? And how do you then use that sample online to see who you might be related to? Okay. So look, this is, this is generic and this is how um, most of the direct-to-consumer DNA tests will work is it's it's a you provide a DNA sample. Sometimes that is by you know providing saliva. Sometimes that's using a swab. You send it. They send it off to the lab. The labs will extract your DNA, and then they will look at specific markers within your DNA. And it's around seven hundred thousand markers that they look at. And then what they'll do is they will run it against a reference panel. Now the reference panels will have been collated over time on good, robust scientific processes where they know, okay, these particular people in this reference panel have lived in this part of the world and, uh, for 400 years and there's good, solid, documented evidence to suggest that that's the case. And when we look at your DNA, we can see that you share 40% of the markers that those people share. So, therefore, you're 40% Irish, as an example. But what, what is happening, what's happening more frequently is the more and more people that take a test, the more data that we get, the more enhanced those reference panels become. And so what, what happens is over time, and, and for, for Ancestry, it's roughly every quarter, we update the ethnicity results. And so your ethnicity results will change. So I wouldn't rush out and get a Viking tattoo just yet. <laughs> Because it, they will change. But what, what you will see happening is some ethnicities will disappear. New ethnicities might appear. But what, what, what you're getting is more granularity. We're becoming a little bit more specific. So rather than just saying, hey, you're Irish, we can now say things like, hmm, you looks like your family comes from Cork. So we're getting to this point the science is getting very very good where it can get right down almost to you know dots on a map the challenge becomes how do you you can do that for one person how do you do that for 20 million people so are all the i mean i've I've certainly seen on ancestry when i've been looking at my trees i found some on other people's trees that say things like dna matched on them but say you send away to ancestry or you send away somewhere else do all of those results end up in some central database or do you only get matched with people who've also subscribed to the same service you're using yeah you only get matched within the service that you're using though there are services like uh GEDmatch, which is where you can so most uh direct consumer services will allow you to download your raw data because Ultimately, it's your information. And so you should have a right to download it. And then you can take it and you can upload it to public databases. The thing to be cautious of is when, when you are doing that and putting your genetic material out into a public database, you're putting it up there 
for anyone to access. Now, I think if, if, if you understand that and you understand the terms and conditions around which that operates, that that's a really generous thing to do because it can help a whole lot of people solve a whole heap of mysteries. But it's important to remain informed about, okay, what's going to happen to that data. Wow. Okay. So then how might I find a match? How might I go, oh, look, there's my third cousin twice removed that I never knew existed? Okay. So when you when you take a, a DNA test and, um, yes, you get your ethnicity and in some cases you might get um, you know, traits as well, but you also get matched with other people in the database. Now, often that is something that you need to opt into and um, you will usually do that in, in the process of you know, registering your DNA. And then they will compare your DNA against everybody else in their database. And, you know, Georgie brought this up, this, this notion of centimorgans. And the best way to think of centimorgans is a measurement of relationship. The more centimorgans that you share, right, so the closer your relationship. So just explain a centimorgan to me. Uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. I don't really know what it is, other than it is a measurement of something. Um, it, it, but it, the best way to think of it, and look, there's plenty of stuff online. If you really want to get into this, it is a fascinating area of of science and a incredibly evolving one. But the centimorgan, the best way to think of centimorgans is to think of them as it's a measurement of relationship. In, in, in terms of how it is used in direct-to-consumer testing. And the more you've got, the closer the relationship. You know, siblings will have a high amount and, and, children, and parents will have a high amount with their children. And the smaller the centimorgans, the further away the relationship is. And so what you're able to do, and again, most, most DNA products will do this, is when you get a cousin match, they will tell you how many centimorgans you share and how many segments, but ultimately they'll, they'll convert that into a range of possible relationships. And so by doing that, you can then start to understand how these people might fit into your idea of family. But, and this is where it can be, I think, interesting and sometimes very challenging is what if you get a really close match and you don't know how they fit into your family? What does that mean? Well, that usually means that there's what we we call a non-paternal event happening somewhere recently within your family history. How often does that happen? Yeah, I, you know, I, I have been trying to work that out. Um. And you know, I've been doing this for for quite a long time now, Suzanne, and I, and I. It happens more than I expect. I think it happens about one in every twenty. Wow, yeah, that's um, yeah. I think most of us would think that was uh, that was a lot. Yeah, fascinating. Now I better get to uh, all of our callers, especially those who've been waiting very patiently on the line. Hello, Bob in Yes. Yeah, hi, how are you? Yeah, doing well. Now, you're Indigenous, so that's posed some challenges for you. Oh, yeah, baby. Yeah, it has. Um, well, okay. Um, I was always told I was Indian uh, from the subcontinent. 
Yeah. And then uh, I went with that pretty well uh, up until I was about 25. And uh, my mother, uh, she's a, a Dorimore girl uh, from uh, Rocky, from Rockhampton. Her mum was from the Torres Strait Islands. Um, and, um, oh, gee, back in, I think it was back in the 20s, um, her, my, my granddad was from Westphalia in Germany. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, um, so anywho, um, my mum broke down in tears and told me that I was an Aboriginal uh, bloke uh, from Rockhampton, um, and uh, that was when I was 25. And wow. Everything. Oh, yeah. You know, and there's and, and there's a thing, there's a thing called shame, okay, with Aboriginal people, okay, is that um, they won't admit. A lot of people won't admit that they actually have Aboriginal heritage. Um, and especially if you're living in a small country town like Yass. Mm. Um, and it's um, in this, um, you know, genealogy and all that sort of stuff, righto, it's, it's, really, it's a really, really big deal, you know. But if you look at Aboriginal culture, is it the aunties know who, who the relations are? Mm. They know all that, you see. Mm. So when, when I rock, went to Rockhampton back in, oh, gee, it's a long time ago now, my aunties would say, don't talk to that girl. Don't talk to that girl. Don't talk to that girl because they're all cousins. You know, I was related to them. I didn't know that. Wow. You know, but at the yeah. time I didn't know I was Aboriginal as well. <laughs> no one so, told yeah. me. Bob, have you been trying to find out more information? Well, I've got more information on my granddad than I've got on my, on my grandma. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he's just um, some cane, cut, cane cutter that rocked up. You know, back in the twenties, right? I decided to go on the beach and just grab the first black belt black oh. woman she could, he could find. Oh, you know, that's all I've got. Mm. You know, um, which is unfortunate. But anyway, if it hadn't, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here. You know, yeah. Um, and 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 also is that you know this I might be drawing a long bow here, but back in the th- you know back when when the first fleet showed up, there wasn't many women on that on those boats. No, you see. Yeah. So you know, and it makes sense if you do 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 the math, right? Oh, is it you know at least thirty percent of Australians in this country uh, have Aboriginal heritage? Yeah. Is is that about right, Brad? About thirty percent, or well, yeah, I think it's it. I mean, it's very interesting, and it's, and then uh, Bob, it's a really interesting question about what what is that level? And you're absolutely right, mate. The the ratio of men to women in the early days of the colony was like six to one, and it was like that for a long time. Mm. And so I think that there is this um, sort of, not hidden because I don't think it's deliberate, but there's this unknown amount of Indigenous connection that we have. And whilst I think DNA can help bring some of that out, for some of the reasons that we discussed earlier, it's not exclusively that. And then I think through a process of combining DNA and doing as much family history as possible, you can start to unpick this. And, yeah, there are challenges in doing research if you're uh, looking at Indigenous history. There is some, but the challenge is, and I'm sure, Bob, you're going to come across this, mate, it's when you're looking, when it's recorded, it's a white Western cultural view of what the Indigenous culture and the Indigenous records are. And so the names could be different. They could be written down in the wrong order. Connections 
don't necessarily get transcribed the right way. It's one view of the world, and it might not be the one that was accurate for the culture in which the family was living. And so there are those challenges, but it's not as bleak as you might think. There are records out there, and many of our state archives have good records for some of the Indigenous stuff. It is not by any means massive, like it is for convict records, for example, but it's not zero. All right. Um, Bob, thanks so much for your call. Now, Jack's got a very interesting um, experience to share, and I know you've been hanging on for an awfully long time, Jack, so thank you for that. Oh, yeah, good day. Just um, quickly on uh, data. So um, last September, I had a um, bone marrow transplant, a stem cell thing, a, a, a just a weird thing. I went to, I had a toothache. I went to a local hospital and they did a bloods and they said, oh, gee, uh, do you have uh, this problem and that problem and something else? And they said, no, I've, I've, I've never been sick in my life. And they said, well, look, you've got three years to go, mate. So you better have a bone marrow stem cell transplant. So um, my uh, partner, have, uh, she, she said, well, look, you know, she she was in ancestry and she said, look, you, you, you'd, you'd better... Um, get your DNA sorted because once this happens and, and this was backed up by the guys in white coats and clipboards, they said that uh, it, once once my old DNA is nuked, uh, I'll get a whole new set. I end up being what's called a chimera, C-H-I-M-E-R-A. Yeah. So I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got a mixture of DNA. So um, literally like the day before I went into hospital, they uh, they, you know, they, they did the test and I've, I've ended up with all these cousins all over the world and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I'm just saying is um, it, 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 it's, it's interesting that, I mean, your uh, data is only as good as your data, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Jack, so yeah. if you had a DNA test now, you'd end up with all sorts of cousins who really weren't your cousins. Would that yeah, be right? yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but I had to do it by a certain date. If I'd done it after the stem cell transplant, I'd end up... The uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it because because I've got a whole new yeah. set of DNA. Wow, um, Brad, are you familiar with this? Yeah, yeah. There there are a couple of conditions that make it it challenging, and you know, but they are edge cases. But you know, I mean, as, I mean, Jack's a great example of that. Yeah. It does happen, and if you know, mate, your your partner had the foresight to get you tested beforehand, um, so that you've got a snapshot of what your DNA is. I mean, that, that, that was genius. Mm. It was to, just to, to have the presence of mind amongst everything else that was going on in your life for your partner to just go, hang on, we also need to do this thing. Mate, that's a, that's a keeper. <laughs> Thanks very much for your call, Jack. Uh, let's talk to Tracy in Brisbane. Hey, Tracy. Hello. How are you? Good. You've been doing some research on your family history. Yes, I don't have much time because I work a lot. But yes, I um, love to do it, but um, not much time. But I have been fairly successful in getting back to about the 1600s. So that's wow. not too bad. Um, um, it does help if you've got some famous people in your family as well. So that oh, makes yeah. it a little who, who bit easier. Who have you easier. got, Tracy? Um, so my, don't know how many times, great uncle was Daniel Mannix from Melbourne. He was the Archbishop. Oh, right. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there's plenty of books written on him. <laughs> yeah. So 
But on my other side, um, on my um, grandmother's side, um, my four times great-grandmother um, on her side, um, there was a lady, who, a young girl who was born in Newcastle. And then in the 18, early 1800s, after she was born, they moved to Utah in America. And um, that young girl was named Rosanna, and she lived until she was about 30. But um, I found a photo of her, and my daughter, who was born in 2000, they looked the spitting image of each oh, other. Gosh. It's just spooky. Same hair, same hairline where it sits, same eyebrows, same eyes, same shaped face, same mouth, the lips. But um, we have a very distinct um, top lip. Yeah, so nose and build. Yeah, well, how so, incredible. I, and what was your reaction the first time you saw that photo? And you went, hang on. Well, I still got it now. I get goosebumps <laughs> because, <laughs> yes, I've still got them. Yeah, so um, I show anybody that's interested in genealogy because I go down to the library and learn down at the libraries. Yeah, because they have um, um, special um, groups that meet with people who are really experienced and helping people who are inexperienced. So libraries are an excellent source for assistance and direction and um just listening to their stories is just wonderful. Yeah. Well, Tracy, thank you so much. Um, now, I think we've got one of these success stories. Uh, Lorraine in Adelaide, hello. Hello, Suzanne. Thank you for taking my call. All right. So tell us what you've what you found out. Uh, just a little over a month ago, um, a cousin of mine contacted me uh, in, from the UK. I now live in Adelaide. Um, and she said a lady has contacted her and it's shown up that they're cousins. So she's either my cousin as well or she's a half-sister. Um, so I contacted my father, who's, who's still with us. He's 86. Um, they did a DNA test and uh, she's a half-sister. Now, she's 64 and was adopted at birth, never knew her birth mother or birth father, but now uh, the birth mother's passed away, but she's uh, been able to meet with our father. Um, and, yeah, so it's uh, just just marvellous that, you know, that a, a cousin contacted a cousin and uh, she's managed to find her, her natural father, yeah, birth father. Wow. Lorraine, what did mm. your father say? I mean, did he know this had happened? Or no, 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 no. It was, that he it was a, a one night, one wow. time thing. Uh, he said apparently he was working on the fairgrounds uh, many, many years ago um, and uh, obviously doesn't remember um, anything. He was a young man at the time, 64 or 65 years ago. Um, and yeah, it's just. Yeah, they've met up a few times and, um, you know, I, hopefully later this year I'll, I'll be able to go over and I'll meet her. Um, mm, oh, incredible. Yeah. And so, yeah. is, so he's, he's, he was happy, was he? I mean, I imagine it was an enormous shock. It was a very big, yeah, a shock, yes, yeah. But um, I think what was really, really nice is his understanding that people just want to know where they come, come from. So the door was open uh, for her, you know, um, because he said that would be awful in life not to actually really know where you yeah. you began. So and Lorraine was she the one who was looking? I mean, was it? I mean, everyone's yes. DNA had to be on there, didn't it? Though, for yes. this to happen. 
Yeah, she yeah. was the one that was looking, yeah. And I think that's because the uh, both the, the adopted parents had passed away. Um, from, from the little information I've been given, she had a very happy upbringing. So it wasn't a case of... Um, because my dad asked her, he said, why didn't you come and find me before? And she said, because I was really happy. Uh, there wasn't mm -hmm. any need for me to do that. But she said, yeah, that the adopted parents, that who, who she would call her mum and dad, were both gone. There was just this little nagging thing in the back of her mind, like I wonder where where I truly came from. Um, and literally lives 15 miles down the road from my dad. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Wonderful. It, yeah, amazing. Lorraine, mm. thank you. Um, now, this probably plays into Sue in Ballarat's um, SMS saying, look, what do you do if you don't know your birth father and you're adopted? Uh, what would your tips be there, Brad? Is that something that, that a, a DNA or an ancestry search yeah. can help with? Yeah, look, it, it it is. And, you know, it's an interesting story that Lorraine was telling, and it's it's becoming increasingly frequent that, you know, you're getting a lot of people, um, as their adoptive parents pass on, they feel it's it's okay for them to now explore what, what their origins are but of course some of the challenges with that is the people who knew have passed and so that what what is great about dna and it can be a little scary at times is it doesn't care about the paperwork it doesn't care about any of the processes it just looks at the science and you can be an, an adopted person and, and i have experienced this um with it on multiple occasions and you can get you take a DNA test, you get results back, and you immediately discover who your biological family is. And so it's absolutely an avenue that you can pursue. But the only advice I would give you if you're out there and you're thinking about doing this is don't do it alone. Get someone to to go with you because you might feel prepared for it, but it can be quite jarring because you get an email to say your results are in, you open up the website that, that's got your DNA and there could be sitting your siblings, your half-siblings, you, even in some cases your parents, and it can be quite confronting. I can imagine so. Um, Amber in Parramatta has a question for us. Amber, you've also been waiting very patiently, so thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you for taking the call as well because it has been a little while. It's very interesting. But um, I'm wondering how difficult it would be for a blended family with name changes and might not have been done with a legal process and the um, incidences of war where you're separated or moved or, you know, how difficult would it be to follow that through and find family? Yeah, look, it... Look, it, it from a paperwork perspective, it can be challenging. I mean, it can be challenging enough with a, you know, an average family. Anything that's whether you've got blended or you've got people who are separated by war, it can be quite difficult. But the beauty of DNA is it doesn't care. It doesn't care about what bits of paper were filled out and what bits weren't. It doesn't care about exactly what kind of relationships people were in. It just cares about the science. So what the DNA will do is it will find you the connections. It will tell you how you're related to people. It will tell you where your ancestors are likely from, regardless of what your political beliefs are, what your religious beliefs are, what systems or processes your ancestors went through to become a family. DNA is just about the science. So it can leapfrog all of that, but it can do it, in, it, can do it very quickly or... You can take a DNA test and you might have to wait two years for the right 
person to also take take the DNA test to make that connection for you. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, Amber. Now, I would like to know, Brad, can DNA, obviously it's very helpful at identifying relatives who might be living. Can it actually be helpful in tracing your tree backwards? Yeah, it can. And it it and it's getting better at doing that. I mean, for I mean, example, we... I've got a lot of information back to about the 1700s. After that, you know, it's all kind of looks like speculation to me on a lot of the stuff that I look at. So when you go back that far, is there anything that's actually able to do that with DNA? Well, you, I mean, there, there are things that you can do. You can look at things like um, haplogroups, for example, that can put you right back, but it, it will leapfrog you back 20, 40, 50,000 years, um, which can be interesting, but it, it doesn't help you if you're building a tree. Personally, I think if you're able to get bits of your tree back to the 1700s, that's an awesome outcome. And DNA might help you only in that it might connect you with a cousin who may have done more research and you can find a common ancestor and see where your families cross over. But, and this is, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is don't just test yourself. Ideally, Test your parents. If you can't do that, see if you can coerce a sibling. So if I could coerce my 104-year-old grandma, that would be the way to go. Oh, absolutely. Um, Again, got to be informed consent. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And look, 17, I'm greedy. I'm I'm trying to, you know, find myself a Scottish laird or clan to. uh, (laughs) Now, someone, who was it earlier, who said, look, yeah, my... Oh, I'm just looking for it. Someone was saying that they have an Irish mystery in their family. Where is it? Uh, Gail, my th- uh, great times three grandfather is an Irish mystery who appeared in Australia in the 1860s. Could DNA tests help me find more information? Yes. Yeah, because what it will do is it will connect you with a bunch of people in Ireland who have taken a DNA test. So if nothing else, it might be able to narrow down from where in Ireland that person came. Okay. Uh, and now another one. Uh, which is quite a detailed one, and I'm not sure where to start on here. Um, Tariq says, my grandfather's father during the Austrian-Hungary occupation of the Balkans and Bos- specifically Bosnia had 11 wives. Uh, wow. And uh, lived in a specific municipality. I'd like to know more. How do I begin? Yeah. Well, look, I think the the easiest way to do that is start with a family history society. Now, often they are associated with libraries, but sometimes they're not. There will no doubt be one in your local area. Now, they won't necessarily have anything right there to help you, but what they can do is they can point you in the right direction to speak to experts who might be able to help you starting on that journey. And that goes for anybody out there who is you know, at all curious about wanting to do something and doesn't necessarily feel comfortable about diving straight into it online. Go to your local history society. Go to your family history society. They are full of people who are just chomping at the bit to help you. (laughs) Uh, Lots of people are chomping at the bit to talk to you tonight as well, Brad. I think we might need to get you on again uh, sometime. I hope you'll be amenable to that. I would love to, Suda. Excellent. Uh, That is Brad Argent. Uh, Brad is the Senior Director of International Programming at Ancestry.com. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. 
You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife. 